I can't believe it's happening. I don't know. It feels like we've been gabbing for the past hour, but now I'm like, whoa. Okay, welcome back to Fascism Podcast. I'm Jackie. I'm Hope. And we talk about things that related to fashion, art, and culture in a way that we think is fun. Yeah, we're two friends. We do too much reading. We ignore our partners, our friends during the week and just like dig into these topics and then we meet and kind of just gab about them. Yeah, and when I say fun, I don't... I'm going, I want to go back on that. <laughs> we do not have fun here. <laughs> I, I want to say that we talk about topics that interest us. Um, and we try, we try to like talk about it between us and hope you find it engaging. We try to communicate why fashion is meaningful and we talk about art and we're kind of creating this world where all of these topics that we research connect. If you like it, give it five stars. We are literally always on the verge of quitting. Not really, but I mean... <laughs> Uh, we could quit eventually <laughs> if yeah. if we don't, you know, get enough um, positive like feedback. Putting them a little pressure on them. Listen, we'll quit if you don't give us five stars. Yeah, exactly. We need constant feedback to stay motivated. Yeah, because so. like, why would you? I think that that's like healthy. You need to have you need to have some sense of like people are listening and they're liking it, which we are getting that. And welcome to the t- lots of people who've subscribed since our Vivian Westwood series. It was super popular so it's been really exciting to see like all of the interest people hate her man like the tiktok comments it's like people have a lot of op- people love her and they hate her there's a lot of opinions on vivian westwood yeah i mean understandably she's a hard character to nail down and because you're just like you're i don't even know how i feel about her i know i don't really like you made a good point you're like she sounds insufferable to hang out with and that's the vibe but i do love her designs and i love her aesthetic so it's like yeah and just like Shouting out to you because you thought of that topic and Andreleon Tally and they were like some of our best. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, some of our best episodes. Um, what's trending for you, Jackie? Oh, man. Um, good question. I mean, again, it's one of those moments where I was not prepared for that, but I, it happens every single time we uh, do a podcast. What is trending for me? All I can think of is, is, is uh, like making out kissing. <laughs> Kissing is trending. <laughs> Kissing is hot, everyone. Kissing is on. It's on the up and up. I gotta tell you. I don't know if you'll try it, but <laughs> yeah, Gen Z doesn't like to kiss, but we are keeping the momentum going. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a lot of kissing. That's all. I'm not gonna tell you with who, I guess, because I don't know. <laughs> this is embarrassing, but honestly, this, that is what is happening the most in my life. I think. If this was Sex in the City, or I don't know, you'd you'd have like a name. For, he'd be like the writer. Yeah, the writer. I mean, I don't want him to... He's probably going to end up trying to listen to one of these episodes, and I'm just... So he'll definitely know who he is. Well, yeah, we'll know when he listens then. Um, but yeah, I... All kinds of kissing. Wink, wink. Um, anyways, yeah, that's all that's, that's all that's going on for me. My head is in the clouds. I'm having a good time. Um, all the drugs are being released in my brain. And yeah, we'll see what happens next time we check in with Trending. Um if kissing will still be on the up and up or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows what can come after kissing? I don't know. Uh, Hope, what's trending for you? 
Trending for me is a longing for rural life. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to grow food, but I do really love cities. I mean, I'm an urban designer and I love people and like art and culture. Uh, so I love cities, but I went to Portland, also a city, and went to a bathhouse and am like now obsessed with building a sauna. It was a very laid back bathhouse and it was just like in a backyard. Um, I talked to someone in the neighborhood who said it used to be just like a place you could go for free. It was just like a hang spot. And oh my God, amazing. I know. And it was just like such a mellow vibe. Like the cold plunge was literally just a clawfoot bathtub that you filled up yourself and then just like drained afterwards. And there was a fire pit. It was like all of the temperatures were in, were available. I surprised Brian and he loved it. He's like into like relaxing and meditating and just like stretching. I don't know. One of his friends is going to start farming at his partner's dad's house in this area that's like not that far from here. And they can't move there because she has a kid. So we've been talking about like going there and like having farm parties and just helping him. And because that's like a part of how I grew up in college, we would like garden together at my collab. And I just fantasizing about working 20 hours a week and then farming. I've been watching a lot of cow videos on TikTok. So you might start seeing that on our. Yeah, I was like going off on my dad yesterday because I not like going off, but conversation with your dad, a passionate conversation <laughs> where he was like telling he said that cows don't have personality. And I was like, you just need to get to know them. <laughs> I was like, every cow is like a big Lulu, my dog. It's actually true. And that's the thing. It's like, we think, it's like he said Lulu didn't have a personality when he first met her. And, you know, we all, we obviously know that not to be true. But I'm just like. I mean, it is a personality focused on eating food. There's a, she, has, <laughs> she has many facets. And I mean, I'm sure, yeah, cows love to graze too. But I, I've just been like, I just want to be like more connected to animals and working less. And I was like imagining we could throw like parties and go all in the sauna together and just like yeah this is classic hope dreaming of parties <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yep that's true but that sounds amazing saunas are life-changing I'm, I'm very into the, believing that going into a sauna can like really solve a lot of your problems yeah and I'm thinking outdoor shower and maybe the maybe the cold plunge bathtub like I don't need to do a hot tub like I don't want to clean that shit no, hot tubs are out yeah saunas are cool yeah, my dad is a water specialist, and I think he'd have an aneurysm if I if I was managing a hot tub. Oh yeah, wait, I didn't know he was a water specialist. I thought he just hated like sitting water. He's like he works in epidemiology around like waterborne disease. Oh, so okay. like back in the day, he'd he'd like testify for usually it was like hospitals or hotels that had a lawsuit because someone had gotten sick, and so he would like help figure out if like they had been like ne negligent in how they were taking care of the water and he was basically just like don't go in hot tubs and I was like I'm gonna <laughs> but anyway so today I'm gonna talk about the aesthetic known as camp I read the essay is it okay if we get started was that abrupt no not at all here we go how will we not do it like that speaking of hot tubs hot summer which means camp right outside right um and speaking of camping outside yeah, speaking of this being a podcast where we just get to say whatever we want, I read the essay Notes on Camp by Susan Sontag after learning that it was the inspiration for the 2019 camp theme Met Gala. Literally, it was called Camp Notes on Fashion. Actually, I didn't know that. I didn't know it until we read Amy to Odell's biography on Anna Wintour. Oh. And so 
I I wanted to read this essay and I think it made sense to do the episode this way because Jackie has a bit more of a background on camp than I do. And I know we're going to have to tell the embarrassing story. So why don't we just get it out? Okay. Well, first off, I think a lot of people have this reaction. So Hope wasn't alone by herself in, this, in, this, in the world of this. But like when it came out... This was the 2019 Met Gala. Hope was, saw the Met Gala and was visibly slightly upset, just like a little bit upset, just because. And I was like, "What? What? You're just like, I don't. You were like, I don't get it." And I was like, "What's wrong?" And you were like, "No one was wearing any camping gear." Right? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Did any of them go to REI?" Like, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, no, yeah, obviously." I mean, and I was like also having a hard time trying to describe camp to like, cause it's like, I was like, it's drag queens. That's all I could really say. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I, I mean, like, I still don't know enough, but I can, I can spot camp, but yeah. I can't define camp. I'm gonna, I want to give some nice juicy background on Susan Sontag because it's like, who is she and why did she write an essay on camp in 1964? So do, what do you know about Susan Sontag? Um, literally nothing, but that she has two S's. Um, I thought she was the lean-in girl. Cheryl Sandberg. <laughs> different eras, different ideas, but yeah. <laughs> I told somebody that we were doing this book, and uh, their response was, oh, like, Susan Santac. So I guess she's a well-known literary person. Yeah. Yeah, before I dug into her, I thought of her vaguely as a feminist author. I think Rebecca Solnit mentioned her at one time. And I was like, I don't know if they're like friends, but they, Rebecca Solnit's like a, a fan. Well, then in that case, I'm a fan because Rebecca Solnit is my favorite, one of my favorite writers. Yeah. One of the ways I prepared for this was I listened to an interview, a long like podcast interview between a biographer of Susan Sontag, Ben Moser, I believe is the name. And he was being interviewed by Rebecca Solnit. It kind of annoys me that I know her as a feminist author or knew her as a feminist author because it's like, that's kind that's like... Not really. It's like, yeah, because she's a woman and she writes and like has has ideas. Yeah. I don't think that's the best descriptor of her. Wikipedia describes her as a writer, philosopher and political activist. She was active in writing and speaking about or traveling to areas of conflict, including the Vietnam War. She wrote extensively about photography, culture and media, AIDS and illness, human rights and leftist ideology. She was controversial and she was described as one of the most influential critics of her generation. She wrote about art and she fucked a lot of artists. I'll get into that more. (laughs) Is that or did that wasn't on our Wikipedia, was it? No. <laughs> this is this is a mishmash of, of different sources. She wrote frequently about the intersection of high and low art, such as her essay called The New Sensibility. Notes on Camp, which she published in 1964, was her breakout essay and what really put her on the map. I can't remember if it was Notes on Camp or The New Sensibility, but one of them was first published in Mademoiselle magazine, which was like a women's fashion magazine. Oh, that's another thing that this dude mentioned was like, it's an essay. And I was Mm -hmm. like, it's an essay? It looks Mm -hmm. like a book to me. It's an essay. Yeah. Yeah. So she's like an essayist, but she also wrote fiction. And apparently to her, like fiction was like the highest form of writing, which is like not how I think of fiction. Interesting. Yeah. Like I I think I find that just interesting because I, yeah, I don't find that the highest... I'm like, what is theory? Is theory not the highest form of writing in the sense that it's a complex idea, but it's just since it's so direct and not a metaphor, it makes it less yeah, like, interesting. I can see how it'd be, it'd be harder to write fiction. For me, I think it would be harder to write fiction. Do you want to know about her early life? Yes, but I also want to say something else. Yeah, yeah. Please interject. Rebecca Solnit is also considered a feminist writer. And although she is a feminist writer, she is more than that. It's just kind of yeah. the pigeonhole of, of women. Women who have ideas. Yeah. She has done, Rebecca Solnit, and I'm assuming that's kind of like how this goes with writers. 
she's written up pieces on feminism as she does, but Rebecca Solnit also wrote books on the history of walking, on the history of just history. On stuff. cities. Like, I think that their oeuvres are similar and that they write about a lot of different things and it's very hard to to pinpoint them yeah. as writers. But to claim them as feminist writers, just like, they're writers. There's no need to claim the feminists. Hopefully you're all fucking feminist writers. Anyways. Right, right. And it's like, she didn't introduce any new feminist theory. That wasn't what she did. But so she was born in New York to Lithuanian and Polish Jewish parents. She describes her childhood as sad. I think another reason that Rebecca Solnit connects to her because they both felt like they had sad and lonely childhoods mm -hmm. where they were just like reading all the time. Her mother was cold and unhappy. Her father was in the fur trading industry and he died of tuberculosis when he was in China trading fur when she was five. Her mom remarried and then she graduated from high school at 15, uh, probably because she was like really smart and also just wanted to get the fuck out. Like she considered childhood and adolescence just like something she wanted to end. She graduated from University of Chicago, where her work appeared in print for the first time in the winter issue of the Chicago Review. She also found a husband there, Philip Reef, who was a sociology instructor at the university. I don't know if he was her instructor, but they got married after a 10-day courtship, and their marriage lasted eight years. She got her master's in philosophy, and then she did doctoral research in metaphysics, ethics, Greek philosophy, continental philosophy, and theology at Harvard. <laughs> For whatever reason, my next note is that she has a signature hairstyle, which includes like a gray streak in the front. Oh my God, so does my grandma. Oh, really? My grandma had poofy hair, as like like all grandmas, but it was all black except for this gray patch mm -hmm. in the front. And I mm -hmm. was like, I guess my grandma was like a fashionista and I just didn't realize it, but. Yeah, iconic. It is a look that I'm here for. Also, who else has that? The, the what not to wear lady. Oh yeah. Do yeah. you got it from her? Maybe. Maybe. We hate her, though, don't we? <laughs> I mean, that show that show sucked, but, like, she was just trying to, you know, she was just trying to find a job. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, Against Interpretation was a collection of essays that included notes on camp and One Culture and the New Sensibility is the other essay. The latter essay, One Culture and the New Sensibility, critiqued the schism between science and the arts and humanities, something that is still relevant if not more relevant today it talks about the lack of usefulness in art in the eyes of an industrialized society if a work or a creation is not efficient it's deemed unnecessary the essay is often referenced for noting that the boundaries between low culture and high culture are disappearing an evolution now known as nobrow many people have seen this essay as a defense of popular culture except this is not necessarily the case Griel marcus and camille paglia who both quote Susan Sontag for an interview in 1988. Um, they talk about this interview in which Susan Sontag was like really dismissive of pop culture. Sontag said, I made a few jolly references to, th to things in pop culture that I enjoyed. I said, for instance, that one could enjoy both Jasper Johns, who she dated, and the Supremes. It isn't as if I wrote an essay on the Supremes. And I also watched an interview with her where she was very mad at the interviewer for asking if she was interested in pop culture. Like, I think she... She wrote so many things that like she, maybe she was like annoyed that people kept calling her like a pop culture critic. Paglia commented in commented in Vamps and Tramps 1994 that, quote, Sontag's calculated veering away from popular culture is my gravest charge against her. Grill Marcus in The Dustbin of History 1995. I wish I could have read all of these things. I was so curious. In his essay on Susan Sontag titled Cowboy Boots and Germans, he corrects Sontag's supposed, quote, equating high and popular culture by saying Sontag is not soft on pop. She doesn't understand it. 
she has little to no interest in it. So like she has been critiqued for like changing her mind about things over time, which like, I mean, whatever. I mean, here's the thing about critique and writers. You have to write about something and critique something. So I don't know if pe people are just writing things because they know like they, it's interesting to the moment, but how much do they actually believe? Yeah. Like critique itself. Yeah. It's I mean? like you're putting out an idea and I feel like you shouldn't be sure about the idea. Exactly. I mean, most professors that write stuff, I think some of the time they're, they actually don't, they don't fully believe. Of course not. Yeah. And I think like she was her biggest critic and like she would have just as easily told you that what she had written was wrong. She didn't, she wasn't like on her grave trying to defend it. But um, in 1967, she grew a lot of, drew a lot of criticism for writing in the Partisan Review. If American is the, if America is the culmination of Western white civilization, as everyone from the left to the right declares, then there must be something terribly wrong with Western white civilization. This is a painful truth. Few of us want to go that far. The truth is that Mozart, Pascal, Boolean algebra, Shakespeare, parliamentary government, blah, 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 don't redeem what this particular civilization has wrought upon the world. The white race is the cancer of human history. It is the white race, and it is alone, its ideologies and its inventions, which eradicates autonomous civilizations wherever it spreads, which has upset the ecological balance of the planet, which now threatens the very experience of life itself. I love that, and I totally agree with that. I know, I have goosebumps. <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's just like, damn, I'll never be that good. Yeah, and it's like, this was in 1967, like, and that's something that like people have said is that her critiques are so relevant today yeah and i feel like that's i mean i don't know if it's gonna relate into camp because it has to because it's just like we've lost so much beautiful colorful items to to whiteness mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's funny how whiteness literally is something that erases color <laughs> yeah chromophobia baby yeah we were gonna do an episode on it but we started reading it and we're like ooh. <laughs> This is a hard. This is hard. Okay, I'm only going to talk about one more thing she's written, which is called On Photography, because I thought it was really cool. In 1977, she published a series of essays on photography. These essays are an exploration of photographs as a collection of the world, who the way we experience life through photos and taking pictures as as we travel. She talks about this method that especially appeals to people handicapped by a ruthless work ethic. Germans, Japanese, and Americans. She says, using a camera appeases the anxiety which the work-driven feel about not working when they are on vacation and supposed to be having fun. They have something to do that is like a friendly imitation of work. They can take pictures. I just told one of my coworkers, I mean, coworkers, well, like, I'm an intern. But it's your coworker. <laughs> your colleague. My colleague. That they were going on vacation. I was like, well, don't think about work while you're gone, you know? Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, I'll try not to. And I was just like, Come on. Yeah, dude. dude. It's hard for me to think about work while I'm working. <laughs> I just couldn't understand. I was just like, but one of my favorite performers and playwriters, Taylor Mack, uh, their shows are long. Their shows mm. are about three hours long. And media has asked why that is. And their response is, it takes people three hours to get out of the work mindset. What? I mean, over time. I mean, like by the end of it, you're like, it is true. It, or their stuff is... Like when I went to go see the play, like one of the plays that I went to go see, or performances really, it was three hours long and it was like interactive, it was crowd and like crowd involvement, which some people hate, but I do love. Um, and it was, it was a lot and it did get you out. Like mm. I did, like the end we all sang like power to the people and held hands, you know, like I did feel like I went through something and I was very distant from like 
the work called yeah reality of work anyways yeah and she just talks about like the convenience of modern photography creating an overabundance of visual material just about everything has been photographed and how it like alters our expectations of what we have the right to view want to view or should view and how we kind of like remember things we remember the photo more than the experience like if we take a photo of something it's like that's what's emblazoned in your mind versus like the experience of being there and like okay so she's writing about photography she's writing about art and she's just like rubbing elbows and other stuff with artists and thinkers her body count is basically like a who's who of modern art most notably her relationship with annie Leibovitz from 1989 until sontag died in 2004 wait what mm-hmm. they were dated mm-hmm. big time it was like her longest relationship. What a power couple. I know. Yeah. It's like all like all these people know each other. They really do. Yeah. She realized that she was bisexual when she was in high school and she lived with a writer and model, Harriet Somers Zwirling, Zwirling who she met at UC Berkeley. Um, then she dated Maria Irene Fornes, a Cuban-American avant-garde playwright and director. Oh, my God. Then she was involved with an Italian aristocrat, Carlota del Peso, and the German academic, Eva Kalisch. How do I get involved in this? This is like the, this is the dating I want. I know. What's the app for this? (laughs) Yeah. Just like, just name a different country and a a random art group. Yeah. That's exactly what I want. Yeah. um, But no, I have white... (laughs) White. white guys i'm just like praying for not in tech when i'm online dating which exactly white guys that th- want to be in a band but aren't yeah. <laughs> yeah um and then she was also romantically involved with jasper johns and paul feck jasper johns was the only artist i recognized on this list besides annie Leibovitz. it's like a modern artist like same era as like robert rauschenberg and stuff it was he's like a painter okay. i like his stuff um yeah 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 choreographer lucinda childs writer joseph brodsky she was a slut i'm here for it you totally know I, I love my sluts yeah she was the best kind of slut um and she probably liked sex i mean and also liked people which i'm like those are the those are the people we should really be elevating like mm-hmm. she found the she found something about all these people fascinating enough to like mm-hmm. yeah and like she was a celebrity like her look was iconic her hair like she people knew her like she was you know schmoozing with like Gore Vidal like that was like she was part of like that scene yeah um on camp was a response to the pop art movement specifically Andy Warhol he became obsessed with her after this and would refer to her as Miss Camp um I'm now going to actually you can point it at me it's just so, there's only a couple, a few lights in, in the basement area that we have. And this one is just aggressively, it's just spotlight. It's a spotlight. Yeah. Okay, here you go. You ready? I really, I feel like I literally just put a spotlight on. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to like read some quotes from this that I found interesting and we can just chat about them. Um, so it starts out. Many things in the world have not been named, and many things, even if they have been named, have never been described. One of these is the sensibility, unmistakably modern, with a variant of sophistication but hardly identical with it, that goes by the cult name of camp. 
A sensibility, as distinct from an idea, is one of the hardest things to talk about, but there are special reasons why camp in particular has never been discussed. It is not a natural mode of sensibility, if there ever has been such. Indeed, the essence of camp is its love for the unnatural, of artifice, and exaggeration. I am strongly drawn to camp, and almost as strongly offended by it. That is why I want to talk about it and why I can. For no one who wholeheartedly shares in a given sensibility can analyze it. He can only, whatever his intention, exhibit it. To name a sensibility, to draw its contours, and to recount its history requires a deep sympathy modified by revulsion. It's like, I don't know if that's true, but it's like a cool thing to say, I guess. Yeah. Like, I can see why you can't critique something that you're fully in. That's fair. Most people think of a sensibility or taste as the realm of purely subjective preferences, those mysterious attractions, mainly sensual, that have not been brought under the sovereignty of reason. They allow that considerations of taste play a part in their reactions to people and the works of art. But this attitude is naive. To patronize the faculty of taste is to patronize oneself, for taste governs every free, as opposed to rote, human response. Nothing is more decisive. There is taste in people, visual taste, taste in emotion. There is taste in acts, taste in morality, intelligence as well is really a kind of taste, a taste in ideas. Okay, I, I, I want to break this down because I'm not fully understanding. So taste, is she saying that everybody comes up with their own social biases? I think she's saying that like we think of taste as frivolous and not meaningful, but it guides everything. Like, mm. like our taste in ideas isn't like, like we have taste in ideas. It's a taste. Yeah. It's not like an objective thing or like a sovereign thing. Yeah. But then I like to say people have no taste. Yeah. But that doesn't actually exist. It's just like, it's, a, it's just I think they have bad taste. According to this, yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so she says the sensibility of an era is not only its most decisive, but also its most perishable aspect. One may capture the ideas the intellectual history and the behavior, the social history of an epic without ever touching upon the sensibility or taste which informed those ideas. So it's like, so it's like when we look at history, people are recording events and like the ideas, the way people have behaved, but it's really hard to, to capture the taste of an era, the sensibility of an era, That's fair. which I think is a cool thought. Um, and then, so she decides to write this as a list because she says that like making it a linear thing wouldn't make sense for what it is. I didn't really get it, but whatever. She just wanted to do a list and you don't have to defend it. It's like a list with like a lot of writing though. Um, listicles are like, I don't know. Seem, I mean, that's buzzfeedy. I think listicles in literary forms have always been viewed as like cheap. Mm -hmm. But So that's why she's probably being defensive of it. Right, right. But also they are easier. They do help make a point faster. Like, totally. Um, she says, uh, to start very generally, camp is a certain mode of aestheticism. It's a way of seeing the world. To emphasize style is to slight content or to introduce an attitude which is neutral with respect to content. It goes without saying that the camp sensibility is disengaged, depoliticized, or at least apolitical. Once, so it's like one thing that she's saying is like it's style over substance. Yeah. So it's like. It's not the content. It's about how it's delivered is like one of the main tenets of camp. Oh, I just feel like everything's slightly political. And it's hard to devoid of that. But yeah, I can see where when I'm imagining camp, I'm thinking 
an object. I'm thinking like, I don't know, Susanna Alexandra's person, mm. you know, um, and it's nostalgic, but it's a, it's void of like having any kind of relative of the politics of that time, I guess. It's just, it's literally just the object itself. Mm-hmm. That is just an extreme yes. version of nostalgia. Yes, totally. Yeah. She gives a lot of lists of things. Tiffany Lamps was one. Um, Swan Lake. I don't know. A lot of things that I didn't know what they were. Women's clothes of the 20s, Art Nouveau. Um, and I'll talk more about that. She says that Cam Taste has an affinity for certain arts over others. Clothes, furniture, visual decor make up a large part of camp. Camp art is often decorative, emphasizing texture, sensuous surface and style at the expense of content. Concert music, because it is contentless, is rarely camp. It offers no opportunity, say, for a contrast between silly or extravagant content in rich form. Sometimes whole art forms become saturated with camp. Classical ballet, opera, movies have seemed so for a long time. Yeah, ballet is camp for whatever reason. Because it's like, it's not the content, really. It's about the, like, gestures. It's about the the objects, the costumes, the the feeling, the exaggeration or whatever. Yeah. I mean, did you ever watch those TikToks where they, like, did book reviews and are like, is it camp or just, like, bad? Mm-mm. Oh, it's so good. Because I'd be like, this is camp. Well, that's an argument she makes is that the whole so bad it's good. It's like sometimes something is so bad it's good. But that, but not everything bad is camp. Exactly. <laughs> and I think, I think that Sontag would say that YA can't be camp because you have to, in her description, you have to believe in what you're doing. And I feel like a lot of times YA authors understand what they're doing, understand what they're doing, and they're too distant from it. I don't know. Sometimes people that are YA authors are upset that they're considered YA authors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they take their writing pretty seriously. Right. They have like teenage characters. Yeah, fair. Yeah. So there is a sense in which it is correct to say it's too good to be camp or too important, not marginal enough. All camp objects and persons contain a large element of artifice. Nothing in nature can be campy because it's like. That makes sense. Why does this make sense? I know. I know. It's weird. (laughs) It's really weird. I'm like, a tree is not camp. A tree is elegant and perfect, even right. though when it's imperfect. Right, yes. The love of the exaggerated, the off, of things being what they are not. In a way, to me, that was like surrealist. The best example is the Art Nouveau, the most typical and fully developed camp style. Art Nouveau objects typically convert one thing into something else. The lighting fixtures in the form of a flowering plant, the living room, which is really a grotto. Well, like Art Nouveau is camp because of the grotto. It's over the top. It's over the top and it takes itself seriously. That's like, it. you can't be like, the purest form of camp is naive, she says. Like, you can't be like doing it on purpose. Well, cause this, you know what this re- reminds me of? But I don't know, I would consider this, like I, I, I'm trying to relate to each of these topics. Yeah. I head to things that I identify with. Um, and Art Nouveau is what I would consider kind of gaudy. And the Catholic Church is... <laughs> Is that not camp? But also they're not naive to anything that they're doing. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe the church isn't camp, but they are giving camp. Uh, I love the, I love Catholic aesthetics. Like I was thinking this weekend about making graphics that are in the style of like those Catholic candles. And I was like, is that bad to do? Like you're allowed to make fun of the Catholic church, right? It's um, like, they're so powerful. hundred percent. I hope you do make fun of, constantly make fun of the Catholic Church. I just love their, I just love the iconography. Like I was imagining oh, this woman in our neighborhood thinks that like my dog changed her dog's life and she always 
talks about it. Like she told my sister and my sister was like, this dog like changed Flora's life. And I'm like, she's talking about Lulu. She thinks that Lulu changed her dog's life by like being the first dog that her like her dog had a positive interaction with. So I was imagining this woman starting a religion based on Lulu and having all of these like candles with her face on it. Anyway. So camp. I'm fucking obsessed with it. It's mm. a heart on fire. Mm. And then there's a lot of, I'm doing a finger gesture over your heart, like the one, and then the heart's on fire. I fucking love that. Ooh. I'm actually obsessed with it. And I thought if I were going to have a quote unquote wedding, which I like, whatever, it, it would have a bunch of sacred hearts. Like I would like sacred hearts everywhere. I want it to be like very like Gucci, like gaudy, but also meets Las Vegas. So yeah. anyways, I'm very into the iconography and I'm trying to think of where I can like have a huge party and make a bunch of sacred heart paintings, uh, textiles. Anyways, I love it. Is, and I want it to give camp. I want every party for, that I ever do to kind of give a sense of camp. But I guess it can't be camp if you're aware of it's camp. Anyways, I don't know. But you're not doing it to make fun of it though like you're not making like i think making when people make campy movies they're trying to be like look how bad it's so bad it's good but that's not what you're doing you're you're you love the aesthetic oh a hundred percent like i just i'm even thinking about it i'm like god it's so the sacred heart is so beautiful yeah <laughs> it's red it's yeah and it's just all in okay so she talks about the androgene and about the epicene which is like neither male nor female um, and how camp taste draws on a mostly unacknowledged truth of taste. The most refined form of sexual attractiveness, as well as the most refined form of sexual pleasure, consists in, in going, oh, wow, I just realized my spit guard is off on this thing. There is a difference, I will say to that, but it depends how much you really care. I feel bad because I really just thought it was you. <laughs> I was like, damn, that girl. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, I was editing and I was just here. <sighs> <laughs> it was dramatic for me to hear honestly I was like, damn okay hope is holding it with her hand i'm so committed um okay i was just about to drop a huge bomb which is what the most refined form of sexual attractiveness is which consists in going against the grains of one's sex what is most beautiful in virile men is something feminine what is most beautiful in feminine women is something masculine Huh. I mean, that's a that's a hot take because I mean, I think there is fem on fem. I think that's just a generalization, of course. But in culture, is that true? I mean, yeah, I guess so to a certain level. Yeah, it's like not true and not not true. You know? Yeah. She says allied to the camp taste for the androgynous is something that seems quite different, but isn't a relish for the exaggeration of sexual characteristics and personality mannerisms. So I feel like that's what you've talked about with like Kim Kardashian is camp because she is an exaggeration of a woman. Yeah. She's an exaggeration of femininity. Um, and in the drag world, they call it giving fish. As fish as fish can be. As fish as fish can be. And, you know, because the vagina smells like fish. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's just, I, well, I don't like to promote that idea, but it's just like Kim Kardashian looks like an extreme version of a woman that no one can ever attain to. So of course it's giving camp. Like... Yeah. Like women don't even look like. Yeah. And she's not, she feels like a character. Like she doesn't feel like bombshells of the 90s that were like. Anna Nicole Smith or whatever. Or like, I'm thinking more like Christy Brinkley or like Cindy Crawford. Ones that were like. That's 80s, I feel like. 80s, sure. Okay. Like where it was more like, they felt like just really hot versions of normal women. I don't know. To me, Kim Kardashian isn't a sex symbol because I'm like, we really want to have sex with her. She's like a. That's fair. She's a robot. 
Yeah, she doesn't feel like a sexual sexual being, but she is selling her sexual like the sexual idea of, of a woman. Maybe it's because she doesn't know how to dance. Oh my god, yeah, she's very uh, um, not Anna Wintour for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know she got kicked off Prince's stage. Like she was friends with the prince's wife for a while. Wait, the prince? Prince, like prince. Prince. I mean, and the prince. I don't know. I I I, I, I don't know. I'm dumb. Uh, she came on this stage to dance with Prince because she was he like called her up and then she started to dance and he nah girl get off stage right now. I love that. That was when like they were still funny and it used to like not be I don't know now there's whatever they used to like give each other shit and it was funny and cl- whatever. Yeah you could like see their family was fun you were like they're a family. Yeah yeah they would fight and like uh, whatever okay we can't now this is in the Kardashian corner so. We constantly just are trying not to talk about their Kardashians but it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard not so camp is the triumph of the epicene style, the convertibility of man and woman, person and thing. Um, and when do you think camp started? When do you think it, where do you think it originated from? It, it probably came out of capitalism in some capacity, right? Like, but it sounds like she came up with it. And I also think maybe, I, I assume the word camp itself, like camp probably existed as a theory for a while. That's what I assume. But like, People started to identify it, I guess, in the queer world. Always, right? Like Definitely very queer. Okay, so she said the dividing line seems to fall in the 18th century. So like dandies. There the origins of camp taste are to be found. Gothic novels, caricature, artificial ruins, and so forth. So I wanted to dig deeper into this. And I ended up looking at the exhibit that happened at the Met during Notes on Camp. And so... Oh, it was so cool. I know. I want to go to that museum. I looked it up. It only costs $30 and a ticket to New York. (laughs) Uh, We should go, though. I know. We talked about going to this. I'm down to go to New York in spring. Okay. Hopefully, I'll have a full-time job and I can say yes to it. Because that's the only thing holding me back from scheduling anything. Literally anything. It's just being not financially secure. Yeah. Camp. So they traced camp back to the 1700s. The camp bow ideal was like... Ardenis, which was Hadrian's lover, a queer icon embraced by artist Robert Maglethorpe. I don't know. Each room in the exhibit had like a, a camp icon. So Louis the Louis the Fourteenth and his brother Monsieur, who was a famous bisexual. Oh, of course. Okay, Louis the Fourteenth is the guy that built or lived in Versailles. I can't. I don't know which one it is because I think the building of it took hundred years or something. Oh. I'm not sure, but. He's definitely involved in Versailles capacity. That makes sense. It says the former royal re- residence of Louis the Fourteenth. Okay, there you go. Uh, so Versailles, for those that don't know, is over the top, extreme version of glamour and elegance of the in France. But one fun fact that I know about Versailles, and I don't know why I know this, but I did go on a like Versailles like. Like, because they have, they're famous for the gardens as well. They have a huge gardens. Versailles uh, doesn't really have many bathrooms. So the wealthy people of that time, they would just shit in corners. Mm. They would just take a shit. So there would be like piles of shit, like hidden behind a curtain. Like that, that is just how it would. Like a servant would go pick up? Yeah. Anyway, so it smelled like shit. Next time... Ava poops on the floor, which she has been doing lately. We think is protest because we're not letting her go outside. I'm going to be like, what do you think? This is the house of Versailles? Uh, yes. Okay, so camp as a verb was first found in a novel by Mo- Moliere Scappin. 
Camp on one leg like a comedy king. Oh, camping on one leg like a comedy king. So it had immediate con- connections to theatricality and performance. Okay, so like when was that? That was... So this was in, this was like pre-1700s and the word camp was used to talk about being theatrical, performing, um, and then by the mid-19th century, camp became associated with the queer community. There were these gals, Fanny and Stella, who were prosecuted for cross-dressing. There was Oscar Wilde, a symbol of camp. In 1934, Paul Cadmus painted a man wearing a tailored tight suit with bleach blonde hair, which were signifiers of queer culture. And in the painting, um, he was surrounded by sailors, camp icons. And then in the, so this painting, these are, this is all from the exhibit. So in the exhibit, they had this painting and then they had like a mannequin dressed like a super campy gay sailor. It looked so cool. That's great. Um, Camp is described as a style in um, Christopher Isherwood's 1954 novel called The World in the Evening. I ordered it and was going to read it, but I put the wrong address into eBay. And in retrospect, it was unnecessary to read a whole novel just for that line. But I I want to say that's not the first time that's happened to help. No, yeah. My address was permanently wrong in eBay. I thought eBay was just bad at delivering packages. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But it would have been cool to read a novel. But he makes a distinction between low camp, which is something located in the queer world, and high camp, as in Baroque art ballet. I don't know what perspective he was coming from. Like, I don't know if he was a queer person. Like, I don't know who he is. So I don't know if it was like a critique from the inside or outside or whatever, but I thought it was an interesting distinction. Queer culture. Okay. I, I Queer culture, I would say, bleeds into Barack and all that bullshit. Like, we have everything beautiful because of queer culture. <laughs> like, that stuff is very gay to me. You know what I mean? Like, ballet, yeah. all that stuff. Like, that high... So, I'm just like, I guess we can identify as a lowbrow, but I'm also like... What, what separates what's the rest? what's not queer about yeah. that yeah. yeah and then there was a Sontag section of the exhibit um, where they pulled pieces from the Mets collection to represent her ideas of camp so they have like Tiffany lamps art nouveau beaded dresses from the 1920s so okay that's like where we can trace camp back to by the way Met Gala everybody claims this is the worst um, like a lot of the critiques and Andre Leon Talley being one of them and Tom Ford really hated the camp um theme Mm -hmm. they They hated the cost they hated the outfits that people wore because they like yeah like who the it was costumey costumey halloweeny they were like hamburger i i think i'm controversial and saying i loved it i don't think of course celebrities are never on i don't know why we expect celebrities to ever like we've said to ever follow the theme they weren't following the theme but i also just love costumey and to say fashion isn't costumey and it's like to think you're a like couture isn't costumey to me. I'm just like, that's a, that's false. That's inaccurate. It's all. Yeah. Vivian Westwood's pirate collection was literally a costume. Yeah. Like, and they loved it. I wish somebody would ask me to, to design something for the Met Gala. Cause I feel like I could pull from this, this, this podcast, I could pull some history out and be like, we're going to nail it. I mean, honestly, the things that the curators know is so astounding. I would, yeah, it would be cool to be at that level. I think it would be hard. I mean, it's their full-time job. Yeah, right. One must distinguish, like I was saying, between naive and deliberate camp. Pure camp is always naive. Camp, which knows itself to be camp, is usually less satisfying. 
The pure examples of camp are unintentional. They are dead serious. The Art Nouveau craftsman who makes a lamp with a snake coiled around it um, is not kidding, nor is he trying to be charming. He is saying in all earnestness, voila, the Orient. Is the Orient therefore camp then? Because I do, I do love. I, yeah, I don't really understand the Orient. Yeah. Um, why that's that. I don't know that much about Art Nouveau. She says probably intending to be campy is always harmful. She says that when self-parody lacks ebullience, ebullience i looked it up it's like enthusiasm but instead reveals even sporadically a contempt for one's themes and one's materials the results are forced and heavy-handed rarely camp have you have to like your subject matter like you can't be like it reminds me of james franco his his rendition of the room the room is like considered by some to be camp and like the way james franco went about redoing it it was like he clearly was he was making fun of it. He didn't have any respect. And like, yeah, I know that the director guy is like a joke, but like James Franco's just such an asshole. I fucking hate James Franco with burning passion and everything he writes and does on his own. Not good. Um, I'm going to say that. And I don't know why he has even a career still. Anyways, that's not the point. But like <laughs> the room is in itself camp to do another, to make fun of it. It's like, yeah, that's what, the, that's what it, that's why it's there. you're saying the quiet thing out loud. Exactly. There's no need for that. There's no need. It's so pretentious. It's like, oh, yeah. Unlike Pineapple Express, which yeah. was like so sophisticated. Exactly. <laughs> um, so she says, so camp rests on innocence. OK, I, I mean, sure. Yeah. Why not? Got it. There, I, I would identify that with that. Um, when something is just bad rather than camp, it's often because it's too mediocre and it's ambition. The artist hasn't attempted to do anything really outlandish. The hallmark of camp is the spirit of extravagance. Camp is a woman walking around in a dress made of three million feathers. Hell yeah, it is. Do you think The Bachelor is camp? Yes. Because it's like exaggeration of femininity and masculinity. It's like extravagance. Simple extravagance, but extravagance. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, maybe style over content? I don't know. I'm not... like. Yeah, the reason I started thinking about it was because I've been researching the styling of the show and there was a dress that was made of ostrich feathers. I mean, they could go further with the styling because it's all bodycon mostly, which is like, but that makes it camp in itself too. Well, it's a lot of, it's a lot of beading and stuff like that. And that's, there's a reason why. Because it picks up on TV? Because they, it's easier to clean. Like they're doing these parties for hours and hours. And so they would get dirty otherwise. Yeah. And like the, they wet the driveway to like make it look shiny. And so they can't have anything that'll like get wet. Interesting. Yeah. Really weird. Um, but also like, yeah, the castle, mm-hmm. the, the whole like Prince Charming. Mm-hmm. The and whole the s- having to get married at the end, get engaged at the end. Yeah. Viewing itself seriously. Although I think the producers at this point have a true contempt for the contestants. I don't think that they believe in what they're doing. So yeah. So what is extravagant in an inconsistent or unpassionate way is not camp. Neither can anything be camp that does not seem to spring from an irrepressible, a virtually uncontrolled sensibility. Without passion, one gets pseudo camp. What is merely decorative, safe, in a word, chic. I love the I love the framing of chic as like a bad thing or just like as a as being safe. It is though. I don't like that. I think I like when everybody says chic, I think boring. Right. It almost means it's like uncritiquable, which is not what you want. Yeah. 
Uh, you want to st- I mean, to me, I'm like, you want to stand out. You want to compete for, like, the most fun. You want to look fun. Chic to me is just like, yeah, it's timeless. Also a problem word for me. Yeah, dude, I've been wanting to make a TikTok about my issues with that word and in like the design world because we're always trying to make things timeless and I'm like why I think timeless and chic are synonymous in in a sense that that's the chic is trying to describe timeless in a different way chic is like expensive timeless yeah maybe sometimes because some people are like Mm -hmm. Like, but it's like it's like chic is like the elevating of boho well it's also kind of the whitewashing of it too it's like it's not extreme boho right right it's like palatable yeah Okay, I like this part. Of course, the canon of camp can change. Time has a great deal to do with it. Time may enhance what seems simply dogged or lacking in fantasy now because we are too close to it, because it resembles too closely our everyday fantasies, the fantasy nature of which we don't perceive. We are better able to enjoy a fantasy as fantasy when it is not our own. This is why so many of the objects prized by camp taste are old-fashioned, out-of-date, demode. It is not a love of the old as such. It's simply that the process of aging or deterioration provides the necessary detachment or arouses a necessary sympathy. When the theme is important and contemporary, the failure of a work of art may make us indignant. Time can change that. Time liberates the work of art from moral relevance, delivering it over to the camp sensibility. Yes. Yes, I completely agree with that. Like Mm -hmm. like I was saying with Susan Alexandra's purse. But yeah, it's like Y2K is another reference that we have that... It is camp, like a lot of the Y2K fashion. Mm. But it, when it was Y2K, it was a trend. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't camp yet. Like mm-hmm. now, though, I feel like it's giving camp, and we can't even see it not being camp. But it's like it, time has passed, and yeah, it's like void of knowing the time and place of why we dress that way. Yeah, and I feel like it's like with music, like when I listen to like seventies disco, and it's like my mom was like way too cool for that when she was younger. And I think like when you're removed from like the cultural associations, it's like you can just enjoy it for the like face value of it for like the f- how fun it feels and like whatever. Like I think that's why I like thrifting because it's like it takes the clothes out of context. Exactly. Yeah. And makeup too. I was just thinking of like how people are doing like 60s mod makeup more lately, especially like since the Elvis movie came out and like a lot of Priscilla uh, Presley's makeup. I mean, it again feels very camp in doing it, and, mm. and but it's not like at the time it was marking a time and place of like women's uh, freedom to start wearing makeup and the access to makeup had never like it was had shifted. Mm. There was a cultural reasoning, but now we we just see it as an opportunity to be exaggerated and uh, give homage to that time period, but not in the context, like with no... With none of the surrounding meaning yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so like when you said that camp is nostalgic, like that's, that's part of that. Camp is the glorification of character. They talk about Greta Garbo, Garbo's incompetence, at least lack of depth as an actress, enhances her beauty. We talked about Greta Garbo. I think she was the same time period as um that one actress we talked about in Marlene Dittrich I just looked her up because I was like who did we talk about yeah Yeah, Greta Garbo I think was like part of that whole thing like the sewing the sewing circle circle. yeah so what camp taste responds to is instant character this is of course very 18th century that was Sontag saying that I didn't know that um and conversely what is not stirred by what is so it's not about development of character it's about instant character 
it's like they walk into a room and it's like it's the theatricality like their mannerisms like it's instant Camp taste turns its back on the good-bad access of ordinary aesthetic judgment. Camp doesn't reverse things. It doesn't argue that the good is bad, the bad is good. What it does is to offer for art and life a different, a supplementary sense of standards. It's about how, like, there's serious works of art, like tragic works of art, saying that, like, there are other creative sensibilities besides the serious. Like, high culture is supposed to be serious and the high style of evaluating people. She said one cheats oneself as a human being if one has respect only for the style of high culture, whatever else one may do or feel on the sky, on the sly. For instance, there's a kind of seriousness whose trademark is anguish, cruelty, derangement. Then she talks about like a second sensibility. Then the third among the great creative sensibilities is camp, the sensibility of failed seriousness, of theatricalization of experience. Camp refuses both the harmonies of traditional seriousness and the risks of fully identifying with extreme states of feeling. The first sensibility, that of high culture, is basically moralistic. The, sen the second sensibility, that of extreme states of feeling, represented in much contemporary avant-garde art, gains power by the tension between moral and aesthetic passion. The third camp is wholly aesthetic. Okay, I, from what I take of that is like camp is a good time. It's fun. It's mm -hmm. not taking itself too seriously. The person really enjoys making it. Mm -hmm. And it like can be serious, but it's not either. It either fails at being. I think it, like, it fails at being serious, basically. I think it, it's all, it can be camp and serious with time. Like it was saying, like right in the moment, if it's serious, it's, it's just gonna, bad. Yeah, it's just bad. But like if it is serious, it has to be like 10 years. Right. Camp. Right. She talks about camp dandyism in the age of mass culture, which makes no distinction between the unique object and the mass-produced object. Camp taste transcends the nausea of the replica. So I think it's like with high culture, you're like, oh, it has to be original, original and camp doesn't care. Go ahead. Oh my God, I just thought of something that's like that. Hmm. Like the Nashville's where we're from, like so we were known as the Athens of the South. I fucking don't know why. Well, you have a Parthenon. <laughs> That's what I was getting to. We built that after the name Athens of the South. Oh, interesting. And we built a replica of the Parthenon with Athena, I think, in the middle of it, like a gold Athena. It's, it is camp. Mm -hmm. It is a replica, literally a replica. And like, I was just thinking about like Nashvillians. That's kind of insane, right? That we built the Parthenon. Yeah. I mean, people are replicating <laughs> Greek stuff all the time. It's so goofy. It is so goofy. I just love it, though. It's like you have to be taking yourself seriously when you're making something out of stone. Like, it's not a joke at that point. Dude, yeah. The, it, also, another thing that another layer of camp, like my friends, I constantly go, I see on the stories, like my, my core group of friends, they're going to see people singing opera at the inside the Parthenon. I just think that's like another level of camp inside Canada. Yeah, it's taking itself seriously. <laughs> and like, you're, yeah, I feel like if you're singing opera, you're serious or it's really bad like they I, I feel like they're taking it seriously they are but i just feel like the people that are watching it are enjoying the aspect of how layer i don't know mm. I, my friends have a good time and they like watching it and seeing people perform but i think it's also because of the scenery and also like, like where it is you mm -hmm. know like that adds to it and that's just like another layer of like goofiness to the situation to me like, yeah i would much rather watch opera in that scenario yeah. than in, in a theater okay so the old style dandy hated vulgarity 
the new style dandy, the lover of camp, appreciates vulgarity. I feel like, yeah, right? Like camp today is... is can be vulgar. Is vulgar, right? Like it can be? It can be. I think... So it's going back on the idea of it being innocent, but... Well, the innocence they were talking about was innocence in the like... Uh, made innocently in that it's not snarky it's not tongue-in-cheek it's not not satirical i don't think it was about like sexual innocence okay this one i wasn't sure of the relationship between boredom and camp taste cannot be overestimated camp taste is by its nature possible only in affluent societies in societies or circles capable of experiencing the psychopathology of affluence. I wonder how much fast fashion has ruined that idea. And mass production. It's like yeah. we can get our hands on a lot of stuff now. Yeah, affluence still exists in, a, in like when it comes to housing, but not really objects as much because everything's been commodified to a way of like exploited, you know, capitalism. We can, we uh, like small things we can get off Amazon pretty cheaply like that we couldn't before. So I, I would say I have camp taste and I'm by no means have any access to affluence. Yeah, that's interesting that it's like gets at what you were saying about Bama Rush in last episode. Yeah. Um, she talks about homosexuals. Not all homosexuals have camp taste, but homosexuals by and large constitute the vanguard and the most articulate audience of camp. Nevertheless, even though homosexuals have been its vanguard, camp taste is much more than homosexual taste. Obviously, its metaphor of life as theater is peculiarly suited as a justification and projection of a certain aspect of the situation of homosexuals. The camp insistence on not being serious, on playing, also connects with the homosexuals' desire to remain youthful. Yet one feels that if homosexuals hadn't more or less invented camp, someone else would. For the aristocratic posture with relation to culture cannot die, though it may persist only in increasingly arbitrary and ingenious ways. She's like, yeah, homosexuals created it, but we would have come up with it without them. Yeah, I know. It's kind of like, it's like, what's the point of saying that, yeah, you know? know that was... Or it's just like, who cares if someone else would have? That's not what happened. That's not what happened. And also like, uh, camp to me is just so a part of the queer world to me, like. I, I, I think when I think of the word camp, I think of queer, like there's like no separation for me in that sense. I'm just like, it's giving, it's giving gay, it's giving bisexual. Like, it just can't, I guess because the history is connected to it. And the, I am kind of curious. I want to know more of why we connect like a, like a, a sense of, uh, theatrics. I mean, with the gay culture, I mean, we know that there's a history of gay men, being a part of gay culture or, or being part of theater, but like the over the topness that camp provides is also so gay that I'm like, why, why do we link those two so much? Cause of dandy is like, I'm just kind of like wondering, yeah, why, why do I always get a sense of this is, so, I love it because it's so gay. It's giving so gay. Like I see a painting of a bright hot dog and I'm like, that is the gayest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. One theory I have that I just that just came to my mind, which like is probably wrong, is like because gay culture is inherently not nuclear family, huh. like it's more about partying and like there's more time to create. Yeah. No, no, no. That's that's you're not wrong because when I went to this gay commune um in, in Tennessee, there's a gay commune, um, and when you drive up, there's a barn that says, welcome home. Oh, it's great. Anyways, um, 
a lot of the people are there are like have been interviewed various times and they're and they're artists they're all artists in some capacity and they talk about they're like thank god i'm gay because otherwise i would have had a family and that and had to like have a normal life and wouldn't have the time to create these weird shit that i create like literally quote unquote so like yeah absolutely it's the escapism of of the mainstream media or mainstream culture that like allows them to like kind of lean into that ex- exaggerance of like i'm already seen as, out- as an outsider i might as well do what i fucking want you know right and i feel like the people who are willing to come out and be part of that culture are going to be bolder people braver people yeah I don't know. And these are also older gays. Mm-hmm. So there's also like, because like newer, <laughs> newer gays, I think younger gays don't come from that, like being gay is your identity. Now it's kind of like everybody's gay. I, I'm not saying that there isn't obviously homophobia rampant throughout our like, country, but I think there is more of an acceptance of not having to like have to push sexuality as part of your identity um, because you're not having to fight it constantly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the pride now is like corporate. It's not people like it's not stone um it's not stonewall people aren't like like it's it's in the mainstream media now you know what i mean like it's it's kind of accepted part of the lgbtqa it doesn't have to hide away Mm -hmm. right it doesn't it doesn't have to be your whole community it might be and you might want it to be which makes a lot of sense but it doesn't have to be like and and with saying that i think there is like and now uh, well gay marriage might might come up for whatever it might be demolished soon who knows but um I think there is more of an ex- like being queer for a long time was alternative and still being queer is alternative. But now it's like being LGBTQA is part of it is almost uniting with the nuclear family ideal. Um, and with like gay marriage is kind of part of that. Um, so it's just kind of interesting of like, I wonder how much loss of art that we're going to get from, I don't know that that's just, I read a whole article once about like how upsetting it is that people are, pushing for uh, gay marriage versus actually demolishing marriage as an institution itself. Cause that's instead of acceptance into uh, a, a part of the new like hetero world or capitalist world, we should be demolishing the system that um, pushes that anyways. Yeah. There's less outsider and that's what they want. <laughs> they- right. Right. Because if they can bring gays into the nuclear family, they can keep perpetuating exactly. this, I, this, lack of community that results in focus on the nuclear exactly. family. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're on to, well, this is item 54. So the experiences of camp are based on the great discovery that the sensibility of high culture has no monopoly upon refinement. Camp asserts that good taste is not simply good taste, that there exists a good taste of bad taste. The man who insists on high and serious pleasures is depriving himself of pleasure, He continually restricts what he can enjoy. In the constant exercise of his good taste, he will eventually price himself out of the market, so to speak. So Camp doesn't propose that it is in bad taste to be serious. It doesn't sneer at someone who succeeds in being seriously dramatic. What it does is to find the success in certain passionate failures. The the elite's monopoly on culture, like they they own the, the means to cultural production. And I like this, like... It's hard for me because I do have such a, a thirst for learning about art and learning about art means learning about what rich people thought was important. A lot of times also, there's folk art and other stuff, but sometimes I just like knowing 
what the names were that people cared about and like you know the the groups of artists that were doing stuff but yeah. and it really is like a like what did the rich think was important i yeah it is kind of interesting it's just like why do we let rich people decide what is worthy of our attention mm-hmm. yeah and what like what's what's good what's art yada yada cj the x sorry one more thing uh wrote about fuck i don't remember his a rapper made this oh fuck i wish i knew remember his name i feel awful but wrote about how this rapper made an album that was like a big hit and then his next album after that he decided to um kind of go all out and like do a weird art thing and it was critically acclaimed and write-ups of white people being like, white people just being like, this isn't the best album he's ever had. And he fucking hates this album. He's like, I wasn't even thinking about these nerds. Like he literally says, I wasn't fucking thinking about these nerds. Right. It's it, like the, they said it was good, but like no one was coming to my shows. Yeah. So it's it kind of interesting in the sense of, I don't know what we were talking about. <laughs> well, like the, like the rich owning, owning culture. Culture, yeah. yeah. Which is like what annoys me about like, Vivian Westwood being like so excited when her stuff gets put in the museum and whatever and it's like you were trying to fight against the man and now you're so excited that the man is featuring your work like yeah yeah but that's basically it that's the end of the essay she ends by saying camp taste identifies with what it is enjoying um people who share the sensibility are not laughing at the thing that they label as as camp they're enjoying it camp is a tender feeling Aww. mm-hmm it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is why I have camp taste because it brings me joy. And one of my best friends, Chrissy, back home, she definitely has camp taste as well. Like aesthetically, very Barbie, very like Lisa Frank, um, which I would all consider absolutely camp. Um, Kim Kardashian, like the extravagant, bedazzled, shiny mm-hmm. bits of the world that we lack at like and one of one of the things that she was showing one time was like to me in an aesthetic um that i like was like i'm really into it was like jars of filled with like water or whatever with barbies in them (laughs) i was like why am i so into this this is like very it's like scientific kind of uh frankenstein-esque with like barbie yeah like stuff like that it's just it almost feels like pop art and i don't fully understand camp's relationship to pop art but i know that's, that's not fair. Okay, I, I go back and forth with, like, me appreciating camp because I love camp in the sense that it does bring me joy. Like, truly bring bright color. I'm a baby. Like, bright colors. I like shiny things. I like, I love, like, blue eye makeup. I love, like, Love Witch is one of the movies that I'm thinking of just, like, aesthetically that is camp. And it knows it's camp, but also enjoys itself being mm-hmm. camp. And mm-hmm. anyways, it's like, it's just, like, that kind of aesthetic is very appealing to me. Um, but I'm also, like, there is an importance for critical thought art in the sense of focusing on political figures. And we try to dismiss it as unattainable because the CIA basically pushed uh, academia to only think as modern art as like the metaphor, like being a straightforward political wasn't academic enough mm. it was too straightforward like everything mm. needs to be metaphorical they're like yeah when you made that art that showed us doing bad stuff we didn't think that that was very good art <laughs> yeah when you were hanging a political figure like that you painted some guy being hung like we just didn't appreciate that it's yeah. just not like, not highbrow it's not highbrow exactly stuff like that where i'm just like 
there is an importance to just being direct. Yeah, it like I I did a TikTok where I was talking about how that article by Terry Nguyen about trends was saying that like our trends today aren't meaningful and people had some really good responses to that like saying that like cottagecore is actually a response to I don't know the pandemic and not wanting to work as much and yada yada and I think that like sometimes when we're in it when we're doing what we're doing when we're putting our barbies in jars and whatever we might not even think about it as political and it might be framed more political in retrospect and so like maybe I'm not giving not like that was that wasn't my theory that was Terry Nguyen's theory right it was her um but like maybe we're not we're not understanding we're not understanding it because we're too close to it like we're not getting what it's really meaning but but I mean but but yeah, it's not literal. And, and maybe we should be pushing ourselves to be more literal, to be. I think there's a fine line because also this is getting into what is our subject, which we could talk about for a while because it's just like. Even like literally Jackie shows up at my house on Friday, walks in the door and she, what is art? And then we just like, we just like start going. I'm like cutting up vegetables and we're just like. Bah, 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 bah. I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I fall into this like void where I'm like what is anything what is what is being literal and is it is it is it is it valuable but also our only in the U.S. I feel like our only cultures are sports and politics so maybe I don't want to be so literal about politics we're already discussing it all the time yeah let's let's create a different culture where I mean yeah yeah like I remember our our professor at UW, Thaisa Way said that art used to be political and now it's it's more personal. It's more people just reflecting on themselves yeah. in a way that she didn't think was good. Yeah, like, I, she's right. Yeah. It's like, it's like this art is about me and my depression. And it's like, I can see how that's, I mean, but that's like, be, especially in places where you couldn't talk shit to the government, artists were the ones who could get away with it. And now it's like, the government is just letting us run our mouths and like we think that that's activism because we can say stuff online and then they're like they let us and then they know that nothing's gonna happen yeah like maybe art is better in that case because it can be more moving like and it can stand out and have more of a lasting impression i don't know i mean it also reflects where art is because it we're talking about individual experiences because we live in an individualistic culture i mean folk art and art was of course political because it was reflective of the community that they were a part of in some capacity. So whatever was happening was happening as like the art was a reflection of all the people in a community versus now it's an experience one person has and hopes to share it with everybody else. I'm trying to decide if I should spend $500 on a screen printing class. I'm like, yes, I've I'll... been spending so much money. My tattoo was $800. But I think that's all worth it. It is nice to support artists. Like this was... It's good for the economy is what, is what um, Marge Simpson says. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, spend money on art. Sign up for people's Patreons. Yeah, we have a number of, of followers that is going to trigger us starting a Patreon so we can start doing more episodes. Like we said, when you give us five stars or tell your friends to listen, it tells us that like we're not just screaming into a void. And I think that's that's all we got for today. All we got for today. All right. I love you. Love you. Hungry now. Dude, we did it. We did it.